So what do you folks know about track and field or athletics, international athletics? Or maybe you've heard the name Caster, Caster Semenya. Or maybe you haven't. But if you haven't, you may have probably heard of the story or parts of the story. But what's the full story of Caster Semenya? And why is that such a a big name, particularly in a class about sport and the history of sport? So let's get into it. Caster, South African woman, born in the Limpopo province, which wasn't too far from the Botswana border with her three sisters and a brother. So if you're looking geographically, we're thinking of Southern Africa. You may have heard of South Africa in terms of Nelson Mandela. So we're looking at the lower bottom of the African continent. Not the big deal. She was born January 7th, 1991. She's an 800 meter specialist, meaning her event in athletics or what we call in North America track and field was the 800 meter. It's a a middle distance, but a lot of folks would say it's a sprint. So you have to go around a 400 meter track twice. If you do an indoor meter or indoor track event, so it would be 200 meters, you go around the track four times. It's an exceptionally hard race. I know anybody out here who might be a a middle distance runner, you understand exactly what I'm saying. Very, very hard. It challenges your cardiovascular, your sprinting ability, your aerobic and aerobic energy systems. It's exceptionally hard. I want you folks to remember this, particularly folks who are not track folks. So Castor was a gold medalist in the 800 meters at the 2012 Olympic Games in London, and also a repeat champion in the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio, Brazil. She was nicknamed the Cobra by her fans because they said she was, quote, a dangerous competitor. Castor has always been involved in her communities. She's actually partnered with local organizations and she advocated for girls' menstrual health. She has a diploma in sports science, which she received in 2018. And in 2014, she won or awarded the Order of Inkamanga, which, quote, was given to South African citizens who have excelled in the fields of arts, culture, literature, music, journalism, or sport, end quote. Seems pretty benign, eh? You know, we're talking about an athlete here, won events, championships, no big deal. So what are we trying to get at then? Castor herself growing up said, quote, I was always away from home, always in the bushes and looking for adventures. So my family always let me do what I like, end quote. Again. Seems pretty benign. You know, a lot of folks grow up, play sports, play with their friends, family. No big deal. Casta went on to say, quote, and this is from a, an interview she had with the BBC in 2009. She went on to say, quote, I grew up more with boys. I never liked to play around with girls because I always thought that girls were too soft. End quote. Again, these are the words of Caster Semenya. 
Again, pretty benign. What's the big deal? She played soccer growing up, like a lot of kids growing up around the world. And before we continue, something I want you to think about through this podcast is that she would always win, particularly in the 800 meters. And if you just Google the 800 meters or if you follow international track and field, particularly coming from the sprints, so the 100 meter, 200 meter, 400 meter, then you're going up into the 815 middle distance, well, longer distance, 3,000, 5,000, 10K marathon, you begin to see a racial distinction, for lack of a better term. The 100, 200, really dominated by black folk. Black Americans, Jamaicans, you've seen it. Other West Indians. You go into the 400 meter again, pretty well dominated by black folk. We're thinking, say, for example, one of the greatest Olympic athletes of all time, Allison Felix, a black American, but also you know, deep in terms of black West Indians, black Africans. But when you get into the 815, it starts to get a little bit uh, whiter, more European. So I want you to think about this. As we move forward with this conversation on Castor. Because she used to win a lot. And by a lot. In a distance, the 800 meters. Which had more white representation. And so I want you to think about too. That this wasn't just a woman who would win. But she was a black woman. Grew up from a lower socioeconomic background from a quote-unquote African country in an event which is dominated by white women. So where she really came to the forefront of the international thinking and international mainstream media was really around 2009 with gender testing. So the IAAF, so the International Association of Athletics Federations, which is now known as the World Athletics, forced her to undergo what they called a gender test. Well, there's some rumblings about her identity. It was argued and shown that Castor was an athlete with what they call Differences in Sex Development, DSD. So around this time, the IAAF, sorry, IAAF, or World Athletics, instituted a new policy for what they call DSD athletes. Some of the terms you may have heard previously, intersex athletes, but DSD. In this new policy, it compelled, as they said, these athletes to reduce their testosterone levels to less than five nanomoles a liter. 
And they said this if they wanted to, quote, compete in elite events between 400 meters and a mile. So 1600. So they argued that this policy was justified because, quote, more than 99% of females have around 0.12 to 1.79 nanomoles a liter of testosterone in their bodies. Interesting. But then those who have differences in sex development are in what they call the male range of 7.7 to 29.4 nanomoles of liter. Interesting. Massive range, eh? They stated, so the court of arbitration for sport upheld the World Athletics or the IAAF policy, arguing that it was, quote, fair because DSD athletes, including Caster, had a significant advantage in size, strength, and power from puberty onwards because of their elevated testosterone levels. Interesting. So again, they're saying the Court of Arbitration for Sport, CAS, is saying this is fair. That if they wanted to compete, they had to reduce their level. So take hormones, drugs, to change who they naturally are in order to fit. But not for all sports, just for those who compete from 400 meter and a mile. Remember, Cass's sport was 800 meters. I just say was, is 800 meters. Smack dab in the middle. So throughout all of this, again, we're thinking about 2009, Caster was forced to sit out for 11 months. And again, during this time, you want evidence-based decision-making. 2017, IWAF, again, World Athletics, did a lot of research, and they stated that, yes, these women with elevated testosterone levels did have a competitive advantage. And that these high testosterone levels was, quote, responsible for an improvement in runner's performance up to 3%. Interesting. So this is the IAAF, again, World Athletics body, the governing body. The Court of Arbitration for Sport was against who Semenya is and how she wanted to compete. The South African government supported Semenya. They said the ruling and the policy and her treatment specifically was dehumanizing. So as we know throughout this time, fast forward 2012, Caster competed, won. London Olympics, 800 meters. 2016, she won. So this was all throughout the courts happening. And and for folks who are following, you may be too young to know this over the past 10 years. This has been in the news, the whispers, the white female athletes, her competitors speaking against her competition, saying it is, quote unquote, unfair to be competing against someone who might be seen as a, quote unquote, man. Hmm. 
Interesting. So by 2018, IWF, World Athletics, they passed regulations stating, quote, that intersex athletes who have a disorder of sexual development, DSD, as we mentioned, and have both X and Y chromosomes, the standard male pattern, would have to lower their testosterone levels to keep competing in women's events from the quarter mile, 400 meters, to mile, which combine speed and endurance. So now it's officially in regulations, not just a suggestion previously to caster. Everybody has to follow. Again, I want you to think about this. These were the exact events that Semenya competes in. Even World Athletics knew what they were doing was discriminatory. <laughs> so they even admitted it's discriminatory. But they said, you know what? It is, quote, necessary to preserve a level playing field in women's events. End quote. They're saying that these intersex athletes, DSD, had an unfair advantage in lean muscle mass, strength, and oxygen carrying capacity. Again, for those who've ever competed in the 800 meter, you understand that having lean muscle mass, strength, and oxygen, oxygen carrying capacity, CO2, or VO2 max, apologies, it's critically important. For all those hockey players out there, you get it. Soccer players, you understand that burst that you need. Hmm. Interesting. So again, this went up. So this was at the World Athletics level, IAAF. Then by 2009, so Swiss-based Court of Arbitration for Sport, CAS I mentioned earlier, also ruled in favor of these restrictions in these particular events. Again, directly against Semenya. So what did she do? She went to the Swiss Supreme Court. So all the while, you had these naysayers, her fellow competitors, her colleagues, one in particular, a British 800-meter runner, white British woman, to boot, named Gemma Simpson, J-E-M-M-A, said running against the mania was, quote, literally running against a man. Um, but what part of Semenya was a man? So you have this rhetoric coming out, fueling the fact that people thought she was a quote unquote man, or is, I should say, a quote unquote man. So what was driving these policies and these regulations? I want you to think about that. Who was driving it? Why? Again, I want you to think within and we mentioned earlier in this class, in the earlier podcast, through the prism of critical race theory, black feminist thought and theory, and this understanding of white supremacy. I want you to think about that as you go forward. So continuing this story, which just happened September 2020, because Semenya, this is from the New York Times, Semenya went all the way to the Swiss Supreme Court. The Supreme Court came back and said, look, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, CAS, 
have the quote right to uphold the conditions of participation issued for female athletes with the genetic variant 46 XY DSD in order to guarantee fair competition for certain disciplines in female athletics. So Semenya went to the top and the top said, nope, this ruling is fair. You cannot compete. Furthermore, the Swiss Supreme Court came back and said, quote, the guarantee, Semenya's guarantee of human dignity was not undermined in agreeing that an athlete's biological characteristics may supersede a person's gender identity to protect fair competition, end quote. Let me ask you again, fair for whom? Fair for Semenya, who can't compete in these events now? Has to either drop down to the 200 or go above the 1500? Or take medication hormones to change who she physiologically is and born with? Or fair that other competitors white women could beat her and win. How do we define fair? Mrs. Semenya came out and said, you know what? Quote, I'm very disappointed by this ruling, but refuse to let world athletics drug me or stop me from being who I am. Excluding female athletes or endangering our health solely because of our natural abilities puts world athletics on the wrong side of history. End quote. That's coming from Semenya herself. I want you to think about that. Even the World Medical Association, the Office of the United Nations High Commission for Human Rights, they were all against the ruling from the Swiss Supreme Court. And there's no nothing higher. It's it for Semenya. She went to the top. And the top of these institutions has said, no, this is fair. If you want to compete, you got to take those drugs. Human Rights Watch came out and said, quote, has called the regulation stigmatizing, stereotyping, and discriminatory. That it, quote, policing of women's bodies on the basis of arbitrary definitions of femininity and racial stereotypes, end quote. Again, arbitrary definitions. What does it mean to be a woman? How do we get into this understanding of gender identity, gender expression? Who and what, quote unquote, is woman? Now we have a sport body saying this is what it is. This is who it can be. And if you are not that, you must change to fit. Interesting. Huh. Interesting. Huh. You even had law professors come out in support of the ruling. Dorian Coleman, who's now a Duke law professor, and she was an elite 800 meter runner in the 80s, stated. That both the CAS and the Swiss Supreme Court recognize that, quote, sex equality in competitive sport is a legitimate goal. And that, quote, separating athletes in competition by biological sex traits is the only way to achieve this goal. Given the physical advantages associated with male puberty and testosterone levels 
in the male range. Okay. So elite, 800 meter runner from 1980s. Now Duke law professor. If you know anything about Duke, this is one of the top schools in North America. Saying this, do me a favor and Google Dorian Coleman. So you now you might be asking yourself, whoa, this just seems really out there. This has to be, you know what, something that just popped up with Cassius and Menya, this whole idea of gender testing, sex testing, taking horn like what the where where did this come from? This this doesn't make any sense. But there's actually a, a much larger and longer history of this process. From a publication, 2013 publication from the University of Toronto's Center for Sports policy studies it really got into this history and understanding of what they stated as quote-unquote naked inspections there's been rumors ideas that you know there's these naked parades where prior to an event or following an event women across the olympics would have to parade naked in front of a panel of judges or doctors quote-unquote to actually see if they had female quote unquote parts. Interesting. A lot of folks have debunked that when it came to the Olympics, but not when it came to the IAAF. Again, now it is World Athletics, the governing body that ruled against Castor Semenya. In this paper from the Center for Sports Policy, is proven that these naked inspections were actually carried out in the 1960s in the IAAF and also the Pan Am Games and the Commonwealth Games. Professor Ian Ritchie from Brock University stated in 1966, International Amateur Athletics Federation required athletes to undergo a physical inspection by three female gynecologists at the European Championships in track and field. This was in Budapest, Hungary. And in that same year, required a pelvic examination for athletes that entered in the Commonwealth Games in Kingston, Jamaica. He followed stating that this happened also at the European Cup track and field events in 1967. And in that same year, the IAAF added chromosome testing to the visual inspection, end quote. I want you to think about this for a second, folks. I want you to think about this second. Imagine, so I know some of you folks here on in this class are athletes. You're a Waterloo Warrior, or you play intramurals, or you play competitively outside prior to coming to university, or during. Imagine before an event, you literally had to walk in front of three gynecologists to have a physical inspection that you were quote-unquote female. And then you had to have a pelvic examination. And then you had to add chromosome testing to prove, quote unquote, your woman. And this is in 1966. Right? 1966. So for some of y'all, this may have been maybe parents, grandparents, if they competed at this level, particularly in track and field, were subject to this patriarchal 
humiliation. To prove, and I'm using that <laughs> the word lightly, that they're a woman. Or however we dis- defined what a woman should or should not be. So and even further, Cassandra Wells, PhD candidate at UBC, University of British Columbia. That there were actually naked parades. Again, the World Championships and the Commonwealth Games. But you think about it, though, and this is what Cassandra Wells argued, was that even though it may not have been the Olympics doing it, she stated that the IOC, the International Olympics Committee, was in on it, in on what the IWF did, and they watched them carefully. And Cassandra went on to say that there was, quote, an overlap in the medical advisors and femininity testing was regularly on the agenda of IOC meetings of that time, end quote. So there's proof that one of the largest bodies or not one of the largest sporting bodies, we can argue across the globe was in on these tests. I can't even call them tests. I don't even know what we, <laughs> I don't even know what to call that. Because imagine, we, we, that's what I wanted to the folks to think about that. Imagine in 2020, you were subject to that. Before playing in a game, you had to say, all right, cool. You know what? Everybody prayed out here. All the women who say if you're a woman, you got to go into this room, take off all your clothes. All right, cool. You a woman. Awesome. Go play. It's 1960s, folks. So you might be asking now, Okay, I can see how that plays into this larger picture of being a woman. I could see how that plays into Caster Semenya and being DSD or quote unquote intersex. I can understand that. But you might be sitting here and scratching your head saying, so um, why are you playing the race card? Where does race come into play? Yeah, I know we're supposed to be thinking in terms of white supremacy, critical race theory, black feminist thought and theory. I get that. But I'm not drawing any connections here. Okay, yeah, you, you brought up Gemma, what she said. You know, it's running against the menu. It's like running against a man. You're talking about different events. So like, ah, so where are you drawing these links? So this is where we go to Elizabeth Aditiba. Uh, she's a PhD student from Columbia University, Department of Sociology. And her research is in this space. And she wrote an article called Cassius Emania and the Cruel History of Contested Black Femininity. And in her article, she said this actually goes beyond just Caster. She brought up Brunian runner Francine Niosamba, who was actually one of Semenya's competitors in the 800 meters. Francine came out and said, you know, there's a lot of women, particularly from the global south. So folks don't know the global south. We call this, you know, we're in the global north and the global south. The racialized spaces or in a term that we do not use and I do not like to use, but the third world, quote unquote. 
And she's saying there's a lot of female athletes who are actually now in the, well, she said the crosshairs of World Athletics regulations. There was also an intersex runner from Uganda. And it Nigasia. And she stated quote that she underwent invasive surgery at the behest of World Athletics doctors to ensure she could continue competing. Complications from the procedure left her damaged both mentally and physically. End quote. So it's not just Caster. There's a pattern here. When we start looking at the pattern, we start seeing the links. Like, hey, wait a second. How come we're not seeing women from Canada? Or Poland? Or Australia? Being subject to these same tests. Interesting. And for us to understand that, we again need to go and start blurring the lines between sport, culture, quote unquote, history, enslavement, and blackness. So the thing that we need to think about is that throughout the period of European, and I'm going to use this term loosely, exploration, quote unquote, throughout the African continent and enslavement in the Americas, there's always been a fascination, a fascination and a dehumanization of black bodies, particularly black female bodies. And at this point, I want you folks, you know, take out your phones and Google Sarah Bartman, B-A-A-R-T-M-A-N, Sarah Bartman. So she's alive between the late 18th century, early 19th century. Bartman was enslaved from Southern Africa and brought to Europe around 1810, basically as a zoo animal. It's taken around in circuses, exhibits, public squares, because, and that's why I want you to Google Sarah Bartman, because I can't really explain it. I want you to Google Sarah Bartman, pull it up on your phones, because supposedly she had much larger female body parts. And when she died, scientists, and I'm going to use the term slightly, quote unquote, scientists, assessed and dissected her elongated labia. And one of the things they did with that was to show how different or deficient black female bodies were compared to the ideals of white womanhood in the white female body. Hmm. Interesting. So I want you to think about this. I want you to hold that thought as we go through. And the, the trick that we need to think about is that all this happened around 
the time when organized sport, again, Victorian era, say, you know, the 1800s, was really coming to the forefront. So it was no coincidence that the rise of organized sport was around the exact same time of the rise of the pseudoscience of race, social Darwinism. And these ideas and ideals have been cemented in this space. So one of the things Aditiba argued is that world athletics, the IAAF, quote, remains committed to a centuries old white supremacist notion that defines womanhood in terms of the white cisgendered female body, rendering everyone else, especially women of African descent, socially unacceptable aberrations, end quote. So this idea of fairness and what is fair to who and what a woman should be is rooted in historical assumptions and attitudes towards black women and what their bodies are or are not. And we can draw this direct line to Sarah Bartman, this idea that black women are these beasts of burden who are quote unquote different, who are manlier, who do not fit the ideals of white womanhood. And these are entrenched in these attitudes from the 19th century. Because we need, even just need to look at from 1897, British missionary, Sir Albert Cook, who was a, uh, and again, I'm using these terms lightly, uh, a medical doctor by training. Aditiba stated that he wrote broadly and unabashedly about the, his ethically dubious biopsies of women in present-day Uganda. So time, late 19th century. Sir Albert Cook stated, and these are his words from 1897, Quote, who has not been struck by the extraordinary narrowness of the Negroid hip? Viewed behind in the erect position at the level of the hips, the female Negroid body is narrow and round as compared with the broad beam of the average European woman. And when the dried pelvises of each are placed alongside each other, the explanation is obvious. The Muganda's bone looks like that of a child in size and in the fineness of its structure. The Negroid races have a shape of pelvis, which is intermediate between the protomorphian races and those of the higher civilized types. The brim, as in the apes, is long oval in shape. That's actually my best impression of what I assumed Sir Albert Cook sounded like in 1897. Maybe I should have thrown on a British accent. I have no idea. But I figured he was real pompous um, in his statements that had actually no scientific credibility at all. But what you can start seeing is, right? 1897, these ideas that Sir Albert Cook and other pseudo scientists, pseudo race scientists, social Darwinists, whatever term you want to use. This is around the exact same time where we are getting the formalization, as I mentioned, of organized sport. And these ideas are being entrenched 
and our practices, policies, and procedures in sport. Even though they're based on absolutely nothing. If you're reading between the lines of what my friend Sir Albert Cook stated, he was essentially comparing black female bodies to being just one step above apes, but still one step below what a white woman, a true human, should be. Hmm. So Aditiba came out and said, you know what? Yeah, quote. And while some might dismiss the relevance of these concepts today, chalking them up to a long ago historical era of overt racism, they nonetheless helped Europeans institutionalize racism in areas like sport. As a result, the medical knowledge that informs society and world athletic standards of womanhood is deeply rooted in racism. And here is where we hit the crux of everything. This is where we're starting to see what white supremacy is in action. Because these were racist ideas. These are clearly racist ideas from Sir Albert Cook in 1897. Clearly racist ideas. Everyone can be like, well, nah, nah, this, this ape thing. No, completely unfounded. But because of folks like Sir, I don't even want to use it, Sir. I'm going to just say Cook. That Cook came out and said because he was a leader or pioneer in medical research his racist ideas became embedded in practices policies and procedures particularly when it came to governing sport because this is all happening around the exact same time with the birth of the IAAF and this is about a 15 year window before it came to be after his statements. So people are using these scientific texts from these leaders in these fields to define what a woman should and shouldn't be. That is white supremacy. And again, these ideas and the belief that black women were and are more masculine is well rooted in the 17th, 18th centuries. It's coming from the space of the dehumanization of black bodies because of the transatlantic slave trade and the institution of enslavement. That black women in particular were re reproducers and producers of labor. They're only meant to work in the fields and then produce children who would also work in the fields. Their bodies were animals. They were no different than a horse, a cow, or whatever else on the plantation. She's like, oh, man, Dr. Taylor, man, you're, you're really getting into the, the old stuff. What's up? No, there was a professor at Western University at the exact same time I was there. And I know y'all haven't seen me in person, but I'm not that old. Black don't crack, but I'm not that old. And a very popular psychologist at Western, Philip Rushton, would argue in this millennia, the 2000s, 90s, 2000s, You'd argue that black people, quote, are less intelligent and more impulsive than white and Asian people. In large part due to their heightened levels of testosterone, end quote. This is in the 90s and 2000s. So think about it. You have professors coming out and saying this. So what do you think other communities are doing? Sport communities. They're basing their knowledge of who and what a black woman should and shouldn't be based on these, quote, unquote, science pieces from credible and reputable sources. What do you think about that?
even if we take the shape much larger away from black women, we're talking about black men and the pseudoscience of race with black men. We're thinking about in 1851. The physician, such as Samuel Cartwright, stated, quote, it is, on, it is not only in the skin that a difference of color exists between the Negro and the white man, but in the membranes, the muscles, the tendons, in all the fluids and secretions, end quote. This is coming from a physician, Samuel Cartwright, in 1851. Meanwhile, there's a reason why they're doing this to justify enslavement. Justify why, particularly in the States, we're butting up into the Civil War in 1861. So what they call the antebellum period. So the period between 1810, well, 1814, the end of the War of 1812 and the start of the Civil War, but they call the antebellum period. There are all these justifications of why enslavement should exist and continue to exist. And what happened was lots of Folks who owned enslaved peoples, we call slaveholders, read Cartwright's work and said, yeah, we, this is our, our biological justification or our scientific justification to maintain slavery, enslavement and racial hierarchy. Even though there was a moral push against it, there was a, 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 a scientific reason because, well, black people are biologically different. They're biologically less than us. They're animals. And they should be treated as such. Moreover, not only should they be treated as such, if we really get in the Tiba, Aditiba really gets into it, stating that, quote, implicit in Cartwright's work was the idea that black men's physicality is acceptable only when it can be manipulated for profit, end quote. And in this case, manipulated for profit was to profit from enslavement. If black folks have bigger tendons, but in their membranes and the differences that make them more physically, naturally physically adept to enslavement and labor because their brains are much smaller. Again, going back to Rushton, yeah, that's the reason to enslave them. They're not fit to be regular people. They're fundamentally different. And that's okay for black men because we can make money off it. And as you read $40 million a slave and throughout this course, I want you to think about that as well, that we're cool with black bodies when they can make other people money. Yes, you're making million dollars on the court or in the field, but those owners are making billions. So it's okay to be a strong black man because you can profit from it. But that's not okay for black women. Black women are shunned and disregarded and pushed away, told to be different. And we even see, particularly in athletics, the white flight from particular events. For folks who've been to track meets, you know, in this class, you've seen 
all the black folk, they run the one, the two. And the distance gets a bit longer. The white folks jump in, the four, the eight, the 15. Black people don't have that much endurance. They physically can't do it. White people, they're not fast enough. White men can't jump. FYI, check that movie out. And the thing I want you to think about is how these racist ideas have become so embedded in our understanding of sport that it is fundamentally natural to us to see and believe that certain people should belong in a particular sport and others shouldn't. 